Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 407. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. I hope you are having an amazing day, and I want to thank you for being here today to listen in on an amazing conversation that I have with Dr. Haval. Kelly. Dr. Kelly is a Syrian refugee, now a cardiologist, having just finished his cardiology fellowship at Emory Hospital, where he started in this country right across the street as a dishwasher. Dr. Haval Kelly shares his story about becoming a physician, the obstacles that he had to overcome, and also the silver lining and the positives of what it was going to take to become a physician. He also talks about his program, the Young Physicians Initiative, that you can find at ypiprogram.com. Let's go and jump in. Say hello to Dr. Haval Kelly. Haval, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. When did you realize you wanted to be a physician? You know, uh, English is one of my, like, you know, fourth languages and being a former refugee traveling, I wanted to pick a a career that I could not lose like my languages. You know, the one thing the refugee keeps with them is when they move from one country to another or from one camp is a language they learn in a hosting company, uh, country. But I think like one thing for me was like, you know, medicine seemed to me something like a language to learn. And I wanted to get a career that I could not lose it in, in case if I have to move out or leave again. Uh, but, you know, it, that that concept of medicine became reinforced through my life in America and living in underserved communities. How much of, of being a refugee and, and traveling from Syria to Germany to the other countries that you've been to, uh, were you exposed to healthcare as a refugee and, and seeing potentially some, uh, some disparities for the refugee community that you're around and, and motivating you to want to help there? 
Well, you know, I, you know, I left Syria when I was young. I was like, you know, 11, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. We left to Germany, a refugee camp. The, the German system is more like, you know, healthcare for all. You know, automatically receive healthcare as everyone else when you arrive to that country. So I don't really see much of disparity. I saw more like a social disparity where like the refugees and immigrants looked, lived in a different, you know, areas and had less access to other things. But healthcare was available to all. That was one thing about the European system. Coming to the U.S. and, you know, being resettled in Clarkson, Georgia after like 9-11, uh, that was a very interesting time. I was like, then when I noticed that, like, okay, when you live in a poor neighborhood, insurance is not available to all. You know, you don't see clinics around you. You know, and I lived in one of the highest crime area in, in you know, in Atlanta. Back then, Clarkson was very dangerous. So that I was witnessing as an 18-year-old who didn't speak English. I'm like, why the ambulance keep coming like, you know, three, four times a week? And it was because either someone got shot or someone had a heart attack. And my dad had a heart attack when we came to the U.S. So mm. that was a wake-up call like me, like something is going on in my area. Maybe I can be part of it, you know, and make a change. What was the 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 motivation for you or, or the really the the encouragement for you and understanding that even as a Syrian refugee to the U.S., that you could go to medical school. I, I think a lot of potential people in your shoes don't really see that as an option. They they think potentially I need to start working as soon as possible. Obviously, the the route to medicine is is a very long route, and and uh, a lot of people don't even think that it's a possibility. Did did you ever have any doubts in your mind about this path and your ability to do it? I mean, I always had doubt, you know, like, you know, we left Syria, we left everything and we left Germany, we left everything and I had to start from over again. And, you know, in the U.S., I was 18 year old, a Kurdish refugee from Syria, you know, a Muslim talking about like two weeks after 9-11 in the South. So, all you know, I didn't realize those barriers because I was just new to this country, but I felt the pressure. Yeah. You know, my dad got sick. My mom was wearing the hijab, couldn't find a job. that day, And so I had to work as a high school senior. You know, and I start washing dishes, you know, and I'm like, I tell people like, you know, washing dishes is not a, it's not a story you hear on TV. Like you're washing dishes, you go home and you start building something, you know, you're like getting wet, you know, nobody recognizes who you are. Like, I remember, forget that, like all these doctors in the scrub will come and I'll pick up their dishes, but they don't look at you as someone who could be part of them. So you're kind of like a ghost. Yeah. So it's not a motivating job, but you got to pay the bills, take care of your family. And that's the reason why. You look at the AMC data, less than 15% of, you know, medical students come from the lowest income bracket. So there's an issue here, I think, that living in poor community, the chance of you becoming a physician is pretty low. Yeah. And that could be various barriers. Not only refugee face, many other poor American face. Yeah. What was the, the biggest obstacle for you once once you decided on this path and you're you're in undergrad going through the the pre-med journey what do you think was the biggest barrier for you the biggest barrier of someone coming from an underserved community is a network your your neighbors are not doctors yeah you know like you know and i went to georgia state university they had a good pre-med program but there's a different way when you get mentorship from a medical student or a physician you know a younger physician the older physician they give you a recommendation that i give you some exposure to get into med school you need that it's like being a personal trainer. You need someone who is freshly involved in the process to get you through. And that person usually is the best, the person who's ahead of you, which I think is a medical student. But where do you find medical students? They don't hang out in Clarkson, Georgia, where I came from. 
you know, and back then, back then, you know, I think now it's a little easier to meet medical students because of social media, maybe if you reach out to people. Yeah. But back then, there was no iPhones when I was growing up. So I think the biggest challenge for any underserved person, in addition to all the economical barrier, is actually the network. Because, I mean, medicine is an inclusive network, as you know, is a circle. Unless you join in and you be exposed to everyone, who's going to get you into the circle? That's the key factor. What's your recommendation for whether it's a, an immigrant, a refugee, uh, someone who's from here, but just from an underserved area who doesn't have that network and is intimidated to reach out and, and really cold call and cold email physicians and other people who potentially could be that, that opening to a network? I mean, you were an attending and you had medical student and pre-med and the character of your favorite person, I'm sure, was the person who was willing to learn and hardworking. Yeah. Intelligent was relative. I tell people, like, your best trademark is showing up. If you're going to meet someone, show up early. You know, make sure you write a very nice email. All of this stuff comes through much stronger than your intelligence. I think intelligence is relative, especially in the age of, you know, social, you know, iPhones now. Mm-hmm. I ask you a question, and by the time I sneeze, you can find the answer. <laughs> yep. So it's not very hard to impress someone with your intelligence. I think it's more about hard work, be passionate, share your story. Don't be afraid. Don't say I don't have it. Everyone has a story, especially if you're coming from a background of struggle. Let's talk about your story. And even if you're privileged, I tell people, like, we don't need everyone to be poor and underserved. We need the privileged one to be part of the process. You know, I think I'm also more impressed by someone who's privileged. Say, hey, I worked for two years in this high school helping kids get into college. And it, they didn't do it for one week traveling to Eritrea, you know, like to another country, but they did it for entire. That's a powerful leader to like, you know, want to recruit into the field. Yeah. So I think be yourself. And also I tell people like hard work and, you know, and passion. That's your trademark. For for a student, right, with, as they're going through this, right, should should they just call? Should they email? Should they hang around the parking lot at the hospital? <laughs> hey, you look like you're a doctor. Can you help me? Um, wh- what is the best way you think that that they can? Right, some some tangible. Um, let's give them some some tactical uh, advice here to as they're trying to reach out. I think one of the things that I learned recently, and you know, you're more experienced, I didn't join the Twitter train later on, but I noticed, <laughs> I was like, hey, Twitter is a big deal. Like, you know, you get on Twitter, there's all these hashtags, you follow Met Twitter, medical student hashtag. And I think because what's going on in our country right now with COVID and all the other stuff, people are looking to help. Yep. And you'll be shocked how many medical student doctors are willing to help if you could follow them on Facebook. If they can help you, they could actually connect you with them. So first, search the community, see who is who on social media. And then there's a lot of program out there, you know, like, you know, black men in medicine, Latinos in medicine. There's also individual people who are doing a lot of work on their own, like have their own network. So, you know, follow those guys. You know, and then you could message and be like, hey, I'm such and such. This is my story. You know, I made a promise to myself, anyone who messaged me on LinkedIn or social media, email, I'm always going to respond. And I get these story of people like, I don't know if I had a Mexican student um, send me a three-page email about his life <laughs> all the way from Mexico, coming to the U.S., now how he's working construction, got his degree. I'm like, I cannot now respond to this person. Yeah. I met him, you know, in a coffee shop and, you know, it's been two years I've been mentoring him. He's one of my top-notch pre-med students. That's awesome. Uh, and then he recruited other pre-med to be part of his project. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I feel like, you know, we're all very busy, right? And that's one thing in medicine everyone says. that You ask a medical student why they take an anatomy in their first year. 
oh, I'm so busy, I have no time. I'm like, but think about it. If you think you're busy, how did you come forward? Because someone found time to help you. So you got to find a time. It could be a, you know, a difference between watching a Netflix episode on Sunday versus like, you know, messaging someone for like, you know, 10 minutes about how to apply. Yeah, that definitely is, is powerful. For, for your journey through this process, especially, um, again, as a refugee, I'm sure English isn't your first language. It's one of your many languages. Uh, a lot of ESL students, a lot of immigrants to this country struggle, whether it's through the undergrad process in their classes or the MCAT specifically, because the MCAT just kills ESL students. How did you manage to get through that process? Uh, you know, I took it when there was verbal reasoning. I'm sure that was your. <laughs> that was too, mine right? too. Yeah, I got yeah, a, I got so a seven in verbal reasoning. I'm not I'm not good at that. <laughs> I was I I think until now every time I think about verbal reasoning it gives me nightmares. <laughs> I can literally take. I think I told someone I could take the step one maybe five times over again for not taking. I feel like that section really has no relevant to me to how. We think as doctor. I mean, come on, like you know, you you you're, you're a surgeon, and like, well, how many times you have to read a passage like that and answer that question to help? I mean, I don't know where the common thing. If you look at the step one, we don't have that in step one and step two and step three. Not yeah. even on a board. Nowhere. So where is that verbal reading section in our medical training? You know, I think that affects many minority and underserved, and also people who didn't have good English education. Yeah. It's not just being an American. I think if you went to a poor high school. I don't know how you're going to be able to answer those questions systemically. So uh, I tell people, you know, try your best, study, study, do practice question. And if you don't do well in that section, you know, you could shine on the other ones. And, you know, hopefully with the right mentorship, the med school could pay attention to you. I always tell medical pre-med student, when you apply to med school, try not to be a number. Try somehow to show to the medical school that you actually, I mean, it's a fact, right? Each medical school gets 10,000 applications. They have to have a filtering system. So trying to find some mentorship in that school you really want to go to, get some help from physician, have a network, because people will vouch for you. Yeah. Once someone vouch for you, you go from being a numeric AMC number and a, you know an MCAT or a GPA formula to become someone who actually they look at it more closely. And that comes from building a network and right mentorship too. Yeah. And that yeah. doesn't come just from shadowing. I tell people shadowing is really overrated. Yep. Like you could shadow thousands of hour, but we know as a physician, you know that <laughs> you're not treating patients like hypertension or a, you know, like you're literally just watching. I'm more impressed with someone telling me, here, I was shouting, but in the meantime, I took the time to talk about prevention to someone. I talked to them about low soul diet. That's more actually interesting to me than just like shouting. So, so build your network, build your story so you shine in your application too. Yeah. Did you have to take the MCAT more than once or was one and done? Oh, man. Man, you know, I took the MCAT, you know, before I graduated. I thought, like, I'm going to graduate, submit my application. Life will be good. God will be good to me. You know, I've been washing dishes for five years. I want to achieve my American dream. I got my score. I'm like, I can't apply with this score. Yeah. And then the struggle was for me is, like, how do I save money for the next MCAT? You know, I was, like, getting paid, like, you know, $6 an hour supporting my family. And one thing people forget, the MCAT is also not cheap. And then you... You know, you want to get those like QBank too, like to study. I mean, it's just, you know, I had to save money and delay it for a year. Took it again, did a little better. I had better mentorship that year. Wrote a better personal statement, you know. But I always tell someone, you just need one acceptance to become a doctor. <laughs> just you don't need one. those 10. No. You know, 
I was like, I just want to go to a medical school and shine. And I got accepted to Morehouse and a couple others. And, you know, Morehouse was in hometown, you know, and I started 2008 at Morehouse School of Medicine. Yeah. When you, when you got your, your MCAT score back the first time, was there any, any seed of doubt in your mind to go, you know what, I, I should just move on. This, this isn't for me. Man, I never forget that when I got it. I think I checked the score and my brother had a game. You know, my brother was one of those people who also like got a scholarship to go to a private school. So we had like this major event, you know, soccer game. And I'm like, let me check my MCAT score. So go ahead and tell him like, you know, that I did well and check it. I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, I couldn't show my weakness to my mom because she was like, you know, and then we go to the soccer field and I'm watching the game and I'm not there. Like I'm dizzy. And, you know, like I never forget that I called my mentor, Dr. Latouf, you know, who, you know, been helping me when I, he met me a year before that. And I was almost crying. I never forget that. He was like, you know what? That's what happened. You move on. That's what medicine is. You know, you just take it again. I mean, same thing with anything we do medicine. You, you make a mistake sometimes. You find a challenge. You learn from it and move on. And that helped, you know. But again, you had to delay a whole year of application. And it's a challenge, you know. I, I, I tell people, like, it wasn't. Because we know most people who apply to med school, they also, like, you know, they're pretty good in their classroom, too. You mm-hmm. know, you're, in a, you're not in the top, bottom 10. You're not, you know, in the top kind of 20, 30. Like, so you're always trying to get a good A and B on your classes. So it was, it was, it was tough. And I, I, I still remember that. Like, that's what I'm telling you, like. Well, you know, because like you said, you did, you know, for verbal reason seven, but you know, the rest is we did good, but this yeah. one section, <laughs> this one section. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it's, I think it's tough for you to take it again because sometimes when you take it again, you're doubting yourself, yep. but you just have to get a mentor. I had good mentorship. I good like, you know, my mom, like finally found out I didn't do well, obviously, because I was not applying. So, you know, she just pray over it and, you know, move on. So you have yeah. to have a support system. I wouldn't take about yourself. Tell your friends and family, don't be ashamed of it that, you didn't do well. I mean, now so, I actually wear with a badge of honor. Like I tell people, Hey man, <laughs> I don't even remember my MCAT score that well, but guess what? I'm a physician. <laughs> How many patients actually, ask sorry, you? I don't think my patient know what the MCAT, my <laughs> patient want me. I'm trying to teach my patient what the cholesterol level mean, what the LDL and HDL mean. Yeah. But you know, like I'm actually like funny, I'm going to be talking to you, but tomorrow I'm starting my first, I just graduated from fellowship in cardiology, like in July. Yep. Tomorrow I'm Congrats. starting my first job as a cardiologist. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm going with confidence. I mean, yeah. And I tell people, hey, man, I didn't do well great on the MCAT, but guess what? You want to talk about your heart disease? I mean, like, you know. <laughs> and I think I went to a pretty good program, too, for both the residency and fellowship, too, yeah. and then medical school, too. When it, when it came time to going through the application process to medical school, again, the the English language is just, it, it seems like it's pervasive, which, I mean, even though English isn't the 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 um, the official language of our country, right? It's it's the language of this country, but it, it seems to put students who are ESL students um, or those who just don't have a strong English language background at a disadvantage. Whether it comes from writing essays, or if you're privileged enough to get invited for an interview, having those one-on-one conversations, and and having some self-doubt about your accent or about your pronunciation, etc. How, how do you recommend overcoming that self-doubt as you're going through the process? I mean, is anything in medicine, you can't be perfect in everything, right? Like, you know, I'm a cardiologist. So if I see, you know, I refer people to other specialties. So you have to ask for help. I think if you think like I, when I applied to Mexico, I was only five years in this country. So I knew 
I need help with my personal statement. You know, I'm very good at math and science, but I'm not great in English. Now I could speak it, but I think when you apply for med school, very important. Remember that when they read your application, you don't want to have any grammatical error. It's not because you didn't speak English. I think because you didn't pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, and I, I tell people like you probably have a bunch of friends who are English major or a history major, philosophy major. That's what I did. Anyone who wasn't a science major, I'm like, you're pretty good in English. That's why you didn't go into science. So uh, let me like, can you read my person? People actually were very receptive. Like a lot of people read my person. I even had like a, a psycho- psychology major in my college read my first statement, corrected it. And in the same way it goes with your experience section. I think people don't understand that paragraph. You want to make sure also is as good as your personal statement. Because the person name might be redundant, but you know, those sections you know make a huge difference. And no section activates interview discussion. So someone might look at you like, say, I'm like, oh, tell me about this experience. And that person might be someone who did that in medical school. So yep. there's also an opportunity to connect with your interviewer. Um, but I think with accent, you know, I mean, hey, man, we have so many accents in this country. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong. My patient, like, you know, have accent. I have an accent. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's a disadvantage more so i think sometimes an advantage it shows that you've been around you know in the world may come from mm-hmm. an interesting background so i wouldn't look at it as disadvantage now my brother now he came here when he's young so he has a perfect english like he speak like a southerner so <laughs> i i kept my accent just i don't know because i just want to keep it so yeah um, yeah i don't think but i think like anything written i don't think it's an excuse for an error i personally think yeah. so i'm not sure what your opinion is about it but i think anything written you could have someone even if you hire someone to yeah even even free funny. stuff like Grammarly now, right? The the plugins for for your internet browser using Grammarly is is an amazing free tool um, that gets better if you if you buy the the increased level. But the the free version is awesome. So a lot of students in in your situation or, or similar situations look at the the negative side of things, look at the disadvantage, see that potentially they're behind, and and look at that lack of network, and they make excuses isn't the right word because that's that's extreme, but they they don't see the silver lining of of really understanding that I I think there there's some silver lining to it of you have zero expectations and the world is open up to you and obviously you have to work hard and obviously there's financial barriers and all I understand all of those things but do do you think there's there's some part of your journey or your journey as a whole that you think is is a positive that that it's led you to where you are and has given you an advantage in any way no that's a wonderful question and you know I appreciate your thinking positive i think we have to stay positive remember in in cardiology you know in any field of medicine when you do your internship you stay when you start there's really no expectation from you you you're a medical student you have some little knowledge but hey here are 10 patients you have to cover and but remember you have a resident you have an attending who will teach you these things and you even when you become an attendee you're going to have senior mentor i think we have to learn from our failures and from our weaknesses and, you know, think about that, what resilience is. Resilience is just keep pushing and working harder. And I think that's one of the characters not people forget what I don't highlight, that medicine is all about resilience. I mean, we tell our patient when we give, you know, an unfortunate diagnosis, you focus on resilience. You tell your patient, I am there for you. I know you right now, you have a terrible diagnosis, but we will work through this. Let's focus on the positive. Let's focus on a plan. 
that's how what we do in medicine. We should apply the same way to our thinking when we face challenges. That come up with a plan, find the people to help you and guide you. So yeah. I think focus on resilience and it's something you don't get taught. It's something is just your story and your journey come through. Yeah, I think I think there are actual studies that that talk about physicians who give their patients hope. Those patients do better versus like even if all of the management is the same, right? Same medication, same everything. The the physicians that actually have that more positive spin, the patients do better. I mean, that's a fact, right? And anything, I mean, you know, you go read all those, and you know, motivational, inspirational book. All what they focus on is positive thinking. Now, positive thinking doesn't mean you know fantasy. You know, like you know, like yeah. if, for example, I say I want to be a basketball player and. And I, you know, yeah, I'm a terrible basketball player. I need to know what my strength is. Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, that's what I'm saying. Is like, also, do not. A lot of people work on their weaknesses but forget their strength. I think yeah. while you're working on your weakness, you need to remember where your strengths are. Yeah, you're gonna be in in day one on internship, and your intern may be much smarter than you, but you can make it up for maybe showing up a little early and know your patient. Maybe read more. You know, again, I think having a weakness could be also like a motivation to learn better and work harder. Yeah. And and having that positive thinking doesn't remove the systemic issues that are in place that are, are potentially keeping students back. What helped you overcome some of those systemic issues that, that are built into society? You, you mentioned where you moved to in Atlanta uh, was more of a quote unquote bad neighborhood um, where we know that school funding is based off of home values. And so the, the quote unquote nicer schools are, are funded well because of the home values in that area. So how did you, how do you think you overcame some of those issues and, and what would you recommend to students to, to overcome some of those systemic issues in our society? You know, it's, it's hard, you know, like, you know, for example, the lot, you know, the journey of the refugee and immigrants might be different from a minority like an Hispanic or African American. Even between Hispanic and African American, there's a whole different challenge to face, especially in the African American community. You know, you see in the data, like, you know, the, over the last 30 years, we have less black male in medicine compared to 30 years ago. I mean, that was a systemic issue that we need to address. You know, as an individual, I think you just have to see, like, okay, what do I need to get ahead, you know? Is it like, you know, like I tell people, it's mentorship and network. Having the right mentors and network does really make a huge difference in your journey. It gives you an inspiration. And what that's what motivated me to do my work. I feel like there's a lot of people in medicine who want to help. And there's a lot of pre-med who want to help. But I think the connection is not probably sometimes done in a correct way. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I think pipelines are a great idea. But one thing about pipeline is you have to also motivate people to go through the pipeline. Like if you don't believe in yourself, become a physician, it could yeah. be 20 pipeline in your neighborhood. So my focus a lot of time is, is, is encouraging. I call myself like my program I run the pre pipeline program, because I am trying to motivate all these students to get through the pipeline and prepare them when they get through the pipeline, they can take the most advantage. I feel like, you know, the most important thing people who face challenges, trying to find a network, and right now with social media, it's actually much easier than back in the days. Yeah. So take advantage of social media. And when you do your social media, remember, your social media is your digital business card. Mm. So if you got something in there, you can't show it to your grandma. <laughs> you know, the grandma rule always wins. <laughs> but remember, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna reach out to a professional person. Yep. Their connection with you is a reflection of them too. 
Yeah. So you want to present yourself in the best way possible. It's like you go into a job interview. And also, I mean, I get people say, hey, what's up, man? I want to like to talk to you. I'm like, well, you know, maybe you should start with like dear <laughs> such and such. I don't care about the doctor thing, but, you know, like it could be a professional way. I don't think yeah. people get taught these things. That's why we need to tell them, hey, next time you reach another physician colleague of mine, you might want to adjust the way you adjust your tone. Yeah. Um, again, back to the grandma rule, right? You don't approach your grandma with a first name, right? Yep. So, yeah. So I, I think these simple things make a huge difference, though. Yeah. I, I had a student reach out to... Uh, another set of physicians on my behalf. I, I was trying to connect them. They, the the mother-daughter duo that just graduated medical school and are starting residency together. I don't know if you saw them. Um, so I, I wanted to reach out to them to get them on the podcast. And, and so a student direct messaged them on Instagram and, and said hi to them by their first name. And then introduced me as Dr. Gray. And, and so I, I privately messaged the student back. I'm like, just, just be aware, right? When you have further interactions, it's very common for women physicians to not be called doctor and men are called doctor. So just understand that and, and catch yourself next time. So it's, it's definitely whether a lot of times we're just not taught these small little things that make a huge difference in how you, you may be perceived. Talk. Perfect. My wife is a cardiologist. Yeah. She's okay. a female, and she's a, you know a year ahead of me. And still, I you know in community people call her by her first name, call me by my doctor name. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, she's a better, she's ahead of me. <laughs> she's the boss. She's board certified. <laughs> you know, like I'm not even board certified yet. So yeah. Just think about it. You're calling the wrong. Per- if you have to call someone a doctor, even I want to call both. She should be called a doctor. Yeah. Talk about the Young Physicians Initiative. Why did you start it? Who is it for? How can how can listeners potentially look into it? You know, it's a very simple concept. You know, I always like tell people, if you want to start something, start it based on something you faced and something you're passionate about. You know, I when I started my fellowship at Emory, there's an article came about it by my story from being a dishwasher to a doctor across from Emory. So, you know, my high school reached out and said, we want you to come talk about, you know, being a doctor. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to this high school. And I know what my high school looked like and what it faced. I went show up there, talked for 10 minutes about being a doctor, you know, how I became a doctor from the same community. And I left my email in the end. And after that night, I got so many emails from these high school students saying, hey, you know, I gave up my my dream becoming a surgeon or a such and such. I take care of my parents. But when I heard about your story doing the same thing, you know, I felt motivated. I felt like I could do it too. I'm like, that's it. These students need a presence. Yeah. So the Young Physician Initiative really focused on being present. And the same thing I said, my neighborhoods were no doctors there. So how, why can, how can we bring that network to them? Because I feel like sometimes when we take kids from their neighborhood and bring them to our institution is a great idea. But then we bring them back to the community to face the same challenges. Yeah. So what we need to do, we need to be in the community. Same thing we do in physician. We don't just like take care of patient in the clinic. We have healthcare workers that go to the community. We do like health fairs. Why can't we do that with pre-med? Why can't? So we started, I started my high school. It was me and one M1, she was a, was a female student. Uh, she, you know, again, given fact, my high school was 50% African-American and 50% refugees and immigrants. It was me and this Caucasian girl, <laughs> not from the South, yeah. and, but she was motivated. We went for a whole year, built this whole program, how we could do, you know, we inspired these kids to become doctors, but through innovative way. We did like medical cases like the show House MD. We engaged them in curiosity. We brought speakers who looked like them. Yep. So like the class was mostly African-American female. We brought an African-American female physician to speak to them. And then we did a panel. So we took that model 
we made it based on the medical student schedule. And then we took it and then we started expanding. So we started around like end of 2016. Today we are like 14 locations across the planet, five, you know, five colleges, you know, five, six, seven colleges, four high school. We have a couple of middle school programs. So we started the pipeline now, you know, across. But it's all based on simple concept. The medical student run the show. They bring the physician as speakers and they're all present in those schools. Yeah. And I think we, we miss, we, we don't use the power of the schools. No matter how poor the school is, they have a classroom, they have a projector. You could take your PowerPoint presentation, you could show up with your colleague, and you might inspire these kids to become physicians. Yeah. So that's what we do. And now we expand it to a virtual mentorship program. We have a conference annually we host. I mean, like, you know, our program is expanding and it's all run by medical students now and interns and residents and physicians supporting them. How can someone listening to this potentially get involved? So there's various ways. Right now, we were mostly physically bound because we live in Atlanta. But because of COVID, now we start a virtual program, a virtual circle. So it's ypiyprogram.com. You could join on different levels. You could join as a medical student, pre-med, physician, resident, and everything is explained. And our model is based on low effort, high impact. So we focus on it's all driven by the schedule of the medical student and resident. Because I think we miss... We, there's ton of pre-med, so we don't have shortage of pre-med. <laughs> we have shortage of these medical community be involved. So we want to make sure they're involved in the best capacity and, you know, and their time is very valuable. And there's various ways to get involved. I mean, right now, we usually open application August for medical students to be engaged. And we get usually more than we could afford to, to assign to locations and programs. That sounds amazing. Hopefully, students will take advantage of that that are listening. Haval, as we wrap up here, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for the student who, um, whether they're from this country, from a disadvantaged background, whether they're a refugee or an immigrant, um, what what final words of wisdom do you have for them as they're they're on this journey, doubting themselves, struggling, uh, just just questioning if this is the path that they they can do. You know, that's always one of the hardest thing to answer. But the best advice I got actually from a lawyer, not for medical liability. <laughs> I never, he came and taught us English every Sunday. And he told me one thing. He's like, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah. So learn how to ask for help, for guidance, for mentorship. And that really stuck with me. And I learned that a hard way. Like, you know, and I think I tell people, ask. And when you ask, share about yourself, be personal. You know, show your story. And finally, don't forget to invest back in your community. I'm a big believer. If you invest in people and communities, you know, the higher power and people invest in you. So even when I was an undergrad, I was like helping high school kids get into college. When I was a med student, I was trying to help pre-med. And the same thing I'm doing right now. I'm a fellow. I'm trying to help residents. So always invest in people. I think that will come back and be an investment in you and makes, you know, your life, I think, better and give you better opportunity. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Haval Kelly from Dishwasher, right across the street or near Emory University, to now a cardiologist having just finished his cardiology fellowship at Emory. An amazing story of perseverance. We talked about that during the interview, perseverance and how important that is to keep in mind. Now, of course, perseverance doesn't erase barriers and obstacles but it helps you understand that no matter what's in your way, you can overcome with that perseverance and with the network 
and mentors that Dr. Haval Kelly is trying to set up. So thank you, Dr. Kelly, for taking the time to join me and sharing your story. And for everyone else, go check out ypiprogram.com and see how you can get involved and go look out for other pipeline programs out there as well and go find a mentor. Have a great day. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.